Open your Bibles with me to two passages, 1 Timothy and Mark 12. 1 Timothy and Mark 12. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Several months ago, uh, the, we were preparing for an issue of the journal on the young. And all of the articles in the journal were by great Baptists of the past, and messages to young people, whether it's college age or, or children, teens. And uh, it's really a fantastic issue. If you haven't gotten one of those, you might want to take a look at it. And I wrote an article for it called The Necessity of Teaching the Greatest Commandment to the Young. The Necessity of Teaching the Greatest Commandment to the Young. And the, the heart behind that was um, I have been around the ministry all of my life. My, my father was a pastor. I went to public school until I was in sixth grade, I think. And then from then on, I was in Christian school, different Christian schools as we moved. Um, so I've been around Christianity and biblical Christianity all of my life. And some of the kids that I grew up with are serving the Lord today, and some of them aren't. How many of you have been around Bible preaching all of your life? Been around it all your life? And how many of you have you know of young people that continued and some that didn't? What's the difference? Why does that happen? I have heard, of course, all my life, in Bible college, it seems like every week someone would come and preach on God's will for your life and all of those things. And I've heard many different uh, explanations for why people stop serving the Lord. And as I was reading through the Scriptures, I believe that I have found the reason. And uh, you could give other things that might, um, that you could add to this. But I think fundamentally what we're going to discuss this week or this morning is the reason that children stop serving the Lord. And um, I am going to preach a, a, a form of this to the young people at camp. And what I wanted to do today was share some things from that article, preach to you some, talk to you some, read to you some. Um, this is going to be one of Pastor Jim's convoluted sermons. I, I don't know that it's going to flow, uh, but I hope that I can express uh, my heart to you on this. And as someone who's been around this now for 30 years, um, that some of the experience that I have will help you with your kids, with your grandkids. How many of you are concerned that your children will and grandchildren will serve the Lord? And so that's where this becomes so important. And I want you to ask the Lord. We're going to pray here in a minute. And I want you to ask the Lord to speak to you, um, to set pride aside. You know, all of us enjoy preaching about someone else, right? Uh, but I think that... There are something in this message is for everyone in the room. Now, those of you who are in different venues where I teach, whether it's Wednesday night or Sunday school hour, you've heard portions of this. And, um, but we're going to put it all together in a way that I hope will help you. And to think about the young people that are at camp, those that didn't go to camp. And uh, uh, let's, let's go to the Lord now. Lord, help us now. And Lord, you know that my mind is all over the place, so I pray that you'll help me to have some focus and be able to deliver this important truth from your word in a way that is helpful. Lord, thank you for those who have gone before that I'm able to read and quote. Lord, but most of all, thank you for your word and the direction that you give us. Lord, help us now. Lord, there are many people here in the room who have children, who have grandchildren, or who have nieces and nephews. And all of us care so much about what happens to our young. Lord, help us to get some instruction from your word today that will help us to know what to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 12. This is written to Paul's son in the faith, Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, 12. The Bible says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Now, would you all agree that this is the goal that every godly parent has for the kids? Isn't it? This is it. Look at what it says again. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. I expect our young people.
to be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Now, we could take an entire message and break down those words and what they mean in the life of the young person. But what's interesting is all of these have to do with what you believe and what you do, faith and practice. Is that right? And now, the simple fact of the matter is you can program a child. Have any of you heard of the Hitler Youth? You can program a child uh, to behave in a certain way that's not necessarily good, right? You can force children to do things. And, you know, when a child is two, that child's not allowed to have an opinion. I love going through a buffet. Now, first of all, I hate buffets anyway because I just know some dude with AIDS just sneezed in my food. You know what I mean? So I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not interested in buffets. But you, you'll go through one. How many did I just ruin your lunch? Just, just right there. Ryan's is going to sue me. Now, you, you watch, and they'll have this two- or three-year-old kid. Do you like squash? Do you like potatoes? Do you like marshmallows? You know, put the food on the plate and have the kid eat it. Amen? Amen. It's so interesting. But, you know, as your children grow at some point, and, and, you know, it depends on the child and how quickly they mature and all those things, you go from because I said so to let me explain to you why we do it this way. This is why you should behave this way. This is what the Bible says. And so there's, a, there's this process from where, first of all, the child just learns obedience. Right? It's much easier to discipline a two-year-old than a 15-year-old, right? Um, Jody Hickman was explaining that to us this morning. <laughs> uh, AJ was, was telling her this week, I guess it was this this week, that her spankings didn't hurt. <laughs> Dad, could you take care of that? Do you think you could? Yeah, but anyway, the simple fact is, <laughs> he's looking down the aisle, a little conversation going on here. Um, the, the, the simple fact of the matter is we teach our children to obey when they're infants and toddlers. And then we teach them how to live as they grow older. Isn't that right? The obedience is cared for early. The obedience is cared for early and then it's maintained. Obedience isn't introduced when they're teenagers. It's maintained. Right? The obedience was introduced when they're three months old and throwing a fit and you're changing their diaper. And you teach them that that's, they're going to get a bad result from that behavior. You know that the three-month-old understands that? They do. They do. And so this, this instruction that we're going to give our children, we teach them obedience when they're very young, and then as they grow, we teach them how to live. And that's the role of the parent. And this is exemplified in this, in this behavior here. Now go with me to uh, Mark chapter 12. One of the guiding principles of my ministry is this. What if the, what if the Lord doesn't return for another hundred years? Now how many of you expect Him to return any moment? Look at what's going on in the world. But if you had lived in 1900, you would have felt the same way. Things had changed so amazingly, especially in the Middle East, and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. But I do believe that the Lord could return at any moment, but I also believe that it could be another 100 years before He comes back. And if He does wait 100 years, what are our children and grandchildren going to believe? What kind of churches are there going to be? What are we going to leave the next generation? It's so important that we establish this uh, for our kids. Uh, I think every pastor would agree and every parent would agree that one of our greatest fears is that our young people will stop serving God, that they'll walk away from the Lord. That's one of our greatest fears. Um, we do have a fear that our young people will lose their faith in college. Now, I know that we've referenced it before. Ken Ham wrote a book called Already Gone, and he said that in many mainline denominational churches, children have already chosen not to believe by the time they're in sixth grade. Sixth grade. 
And he identified one of the main problems was that, that the, the, what they were learning in Sunday school were stories. So you have the story of Santa Claus and the story of the Easter Bunny and the story of the resurrection. And so it's very important that they understand that these are not myths, that they're historical facts. These are things that happened. And so that's, that's part of the problem. But this, this concept of children losing their faith long before they go to college, part of that comes from this. Young people have questions. We need to have answers. Amen? Young people have questions. We must have answers. Now, the one vital issue, the one thing that young men and women must be grounded in is something called presuppositional truth. Presuppositional truth. These are things presupposed. They are ideas that come before. And we get that from this text. Uh, a scribe came to Jesus. Look what the Bible says in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Mark 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, speaking of Jesus, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, everybody look up here at me for a minute. If you ask the average person, what's the greatest commandment? What they're going to say is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right? How many of you have heard that talk? The only problem is that's not what the Bible says. It's amazing how the Bible can really clear up a lot of our teaching. Because here's what happens. You'll have someone who is living a lifestyle that's abhorrent to the Scriptures, and they'll say they love God just as much as you do. And they're keeping that first commandment. But they're living a lifestyle that, that, that violates the Word of God. What's the answer to all of this? It's presuppositional truth. I can't love God until I know who God is. I can love God, but is it the one true God? The God that I'm loving, is He the God of the Bible, or is He a God of my own making? That's why the Scriptures say it this way. Look at your text. At the end of verse 28, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Isn't that interesting? And it's, I'm amazed at how that is just skipped over. And so this is the heart. How are we going to raise children that will serve God long after we're gone? That's the heart that I have. Um, now, praise the Lord. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I have three sisters and one brother. But the simple fact is, all of my parents' children are saved. I think all of the grandchildren are saved. Um, how does that happen? How does that happen? I think that that's awesome. Don't you? How many of you have heard of preacher's kids going bad? They don't have to. They don't have to. How many of you have heard of deacon's kids going bad? Yeah, look around, you see. <laughs> they don't have to. What is the issue? How, what do we have to do? Well, well, you can't love God until you know who He is. And that's this concept of presuppositional truth. According to the lawgiver, there's a hierarchy of commandments, a first and a second. In modern language, we would call these commandments laws or axioms, first things. Jesus establishes for us a biblical prioritizing of our thinking. He outlines our presuppositions, those truths that we should presuppose. Look at the way he does it. All right. Verse 29. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like. Now, I want you to notice something here. Something profound. First and second. Is that an order of priority? So Jesus says, first, hear, O Israel, the Lord our Lord is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second. Look at what the second one is. 
And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. All right? So the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. What's the point? You don't know how to love your neighbor until you know how to love God. You don't know what is good for your neighbor until you have heard from God what is good. We can't know what good is without knowing that and learning it, hearing it from God. That's where it all starts. Jesus establishes for us a biblical prioritizing of our thinking. Now, a godly youth group will help this. Would you all agree with that? A godly youth group, it's surely going to help, but it's mom and dad who have the hearts of the children. I hope you have your child's heart. Now, I will say this. If you have your children in so many activities that you, your only role is chauffeur, then I think you're making a mistake. If you have your children in so many activities, between school and activities, that your only role is chauffeur, I think you're making a mistake. Amen. Amen. I think that... Let me tell you something. There, there's a reason why all these businesses come to Shelby County. It's because you all work hard. You're busy. You're busy. Can I promise you something? Busyness is not the same as time. Busyness is not the same as time. We must spend time with our children and gain their hearts. Giving children a list of behaviors to obey will never teach love for God and His Word. I told you what Dalton Robertson said. He said they would uh, go around the table and the kids would quote Scripture. And if one of them messed it up, he had this big soup ladle that he hit him over the head with. He said it really taught him how to love God's Word. <laughs> it's a joke, but it's really funny. And honestly, that is the way, that's the love for Scripture. You have your verses ready? Are your verses memorized? You don't have your verses memorized. You're, you're going to be embarrassed in Awana. Make sure that you get your... Don't you just love Scripture? Isn't that interesting? See, there's a big difference between a list of behaviors and a love for God's Word. Standards, no matter how biblical, can never produce holy children. Knowledge of the holy will. That's God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. See, our children need to know God in order to know what is good. Our children need to know God in order to be able to love Him. It's the only way it's going to happen. Now, remember how Jesus Christ establishes our priorities. He begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So here's the, here's the first priority. Hear and listen to God through His Word. That's where it all starts. That's where it all starts. There has to be a love for God's Word and a discussion about God's Word. Listen to how I have it written. The first priority of my life, or in the words of Scripture, the first commandment in my life, is to hear God. Uh, turn your Bibles to Psalm... Keep your place in Mark 12 because we're going to come back there. But turn with me to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse 1. The Bible says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. What does it mean to incline your ears? It's like this. When someone's talking to you, you're, you're trying to listen. And young people, this is why I always say, look at me. Because I'm talking to you. Imagine if you were talking to me. Okay, here, uh, Aiden, stand up. No, no, get back down. No, oh, that's right. So go ahead and, and just talk to me. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Hi. It's a little disconcerting, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you. What, what do you want? You want somebody to, when you're, you're talking to them, you want them to they lean a little forward. They care. They're interested. How many of you know when somebody's not listening to you? They're generally called husbands. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm listening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
that incline your ear, what does that mean? What God says is we are to hear his word on purpose. It's a posture and an attitude of hearing. I'm interested. I can't wait to hear. Have you ever heard a good storyteller? They just have you on the edge of their seat. I like to listen to stories when I drive. I listen to books. They used to be called books on tape. Tapes, they're these things that they used to have sound. Okay? And, and so I like to listen to them, and sometimes it's just, you know, horrible. I listened to this book one time, and it was supposed to be a classic and all this stuff. Well, maybe people were different then because it was terrible. But other times, you can't wait. I can't wait to get back in the car to hear the, the, the next part that's coming in the story. And what am I doing? I'm inclining to hear that. That's the priority that we need to give to God's Word. That's the priority that we need to give to God's Word. But that's an attitude that has to be established in the life of the individual. And again, if we, if we have our children's lives so busy that there's, there's simply no time for prayer and God's Word or the discussion of God's Word among the family... Are we establishing an atmosphere for them to hear and obey God's word? We're not. We're not. And so this is where this, this foundation of children leaving the Lord, this is where it begins. This idea of give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. The first presuppositional truth we must teach our children, we must teach our young people, is to listen to God's word. I know this appears obvious, but if we could see into our children's hearts, I believe we would be shocked by how little authority the Word of God has in their thinking. They have competing authorities. They are governed by their parents and their parents' rules. They are ruled by their peers' opinions of both them and their attitudes. They are ruled by public opinion as expressed at school, in movies, in the songs to which they listen with these divergent voices in their heads, is it no wonder our children are confused? Where does God's word fit in this menagerie of voices? Have you asked your children? I think, I think that if we talk to our kids, where does God's word fit in your life? When you're making a decision, where does God's word come into it? Good question, isn't it? It's something that we need to ask our kids. We must establish them in the Scriptures as their sole authority so that they are able to withstand in the evil day. Consider the whole armor of God from Ephesians 6 and the practical power it provides to our young people. Notice the first piece that's mentioned. Go to Ephesians 6 and let's look at that. All right, we're in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with the truth. All right, so that's where it begins. Stand therefore, with your loins girt about with truth. So, as you know, the girding of the loins was to facilitate freedom of movement by tying up the loose ends of the robe in a long belt. So imagine you've got a long robe on, well, you're going to take that loose part and, and, and tuck it into your belt so that you can run, you can work, you can fight. That's, that's what girding your loins was. So all of those loose, loose ends, you're supposed to wrap up in the truth. Well, John 17, 17 tells us what the truth is. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So the idea is you tie up the loose ends of your life with the word of God. You tie up the loose ends of your thinking with the word of God. Go with me to uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 10. Second Corinthians, chapter 10. Look at verse 5. The Bible says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you think that there are things in our culture exalting themselves against the knowledge of God? Isn't that right? And honestly, today you can say, I believe in God. But if you believe in the God of the Bible, you're a freak. You're made out to be a bigot, a hateful person, all of these things. If you simply agree with the God of the Bible, what is that? That's the culture fighting against 
God. So look what the text says again. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. What's the first commandment? Know God. Know God. Hear Him. Know who He is. So look what the Bible says. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And here's what happens. The Bible says one thing, and we say, like we talked about it, oh, several months ago, well, I know the Bible says that, but I think... Well, remember, God's thoughts are above our thoughts. His way are above our ways. As high as the heaven is above the earth, that's how much higher God's thoughts are than our thoughts. And yet I'm supposed to, uh, and yet I think that I know better than God? See, what's the problem? The person that says, I know the Bible says that, but, that's the yeah, but theology. Comma, buts, the attack of the comma, buts. Yes, this is what the Bible says, comma, but... I don't know that that's really true today. What's the difference? What's the problem? That person has their presuppositions out of whack. Their presuppositions are, yeah, the Bible's a good book, but human reason is better. The Bible's a good book, but I want to live my way. The Bible's a good book, but I think. The Bible's a good book, but Christians are mean. The Bible's a good book, but I don't like the way that people Christians talk about these things. It's interesting, isn't it? How many of you have ever had Christians represent you in a way that embarrassed you? But that's not God. That's a person being disobedient to God. We need to represent God in a way that brings glory to Him, not shame. The wonderful grace of God is revealed in this text. Bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Liberty in life is the result of tying one thinking up in Scripture. Liberty comes from captivity of thought. The young person then is not a slave to worldly thinking, but is free through Christ. The Bible says in John 8, 32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Psalm 119, 45 says, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. How many want your kids to be free? Then teach them to tie up their thinking in the Word of God. Um. Andy works with electricity. And there are some rules that guide you in what you do, right? Now, you really are free to grab that live wire. You are free to do that. Is that a good way to live? No, no, no. And if you have high enough voltage or wattage, whatever it is, I don't know the terms, it could be a very bad choice, right? So you're free to grab the live wire... But by tying up your thinking, by limiting your behavior, you get to go home to your wife and kids. See? So, well, I, I want to do what I want to do. Well, th these rules aren't for me. Who are you to make rules? All right, go ahead and grab the wire, you moron. We'll just call you crispy. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? And yet that's the world. That's what the world is doing. I'm free to... Who are you to tell me how to behave? I'm nobody. I'm just telling you what God said. You are free to do whatever you want to do. But remember, your freedom is going to lead to destruction. Real liberty comes from captivity of every thought to the Word of God. We have to teach our young. Listen to this. Open-mindedness is not a virtue. That's offensive to this culture, isn't it? I like the statement, an open mind is for the purpose of closing upon something solid. Otherwise, it becomes like the city sewer, rejecting nothing. How many of you know people that their minds are a sewer? It does them no good to bring it all in. Parent, have you been so influenced by the world and the enemy that this statement is offensive to you? Has the relativism of the culture so influenced your thinking that biblical discernment and separation are somehow vices, while acceptance of evil is virtue? If you think this way, what hope is there for your children? Your confidence in the truth or lack thereof will influence their thinking and discernment. Look at what Solomon said. Go to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs 22. 
Look at verse 17. Proverbs 22, verse 17. We're going to read through verse 21. Bow, the, bow down thine ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them within thee. They shall withal be fitted in thy lips, that thy trust may be in the Lord. I have made known to thee this day, even to thee, I have not, or have not I, written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee. What is he saying? I have taught you the truth, and I've taught you the certainty of the truth, so that when people try to draw you aside into a way that will lead you to destruction, you know how to answer them with the truth. The thought that always comes to my mind is when I was a senior in high school, my parents had already moved to Indiana, and I stayed there with my brother, and I worked at a shoe store in the mall. And I remember going out to eat with some folks after work. And I know I've told some of you this story before. But they, they put a drink, an alcoholic drink, in front of me. They wanted to make the preacher's kid take a drink. And they put it in front of me, and they said, Here, it's, it's good. I think it was called an ice pick. It was vodka and iced tea. And they said, It'll be really good. It just, it just has a little bit in it. You'll like it. And it, it, I'll tell you what's liberating. This is very liberating, young people. I, I didn't want to drink it. I had no desire to drink it. I wasn't tempted to drink it. There was no trouble. I just said, I don't drink. I don't drink alcohol. And they, they tried to make a big deal out of it. And I, I just don't drink. Do you know what had happened? We had moved so much. I'd come into so many new uh, situations. I had been a preacher's kid. I had borne reproach in the schools and different neighborhoods where I had been. I'd been down this road before. It didn't matter. When I, when I went back to school when I was 30, I was in college, and I was working at Circuit City. And this guy, his name is Tim Housley, and uh, he walked up and handed me a Sports Illustrated magazine. He said, here, take a look at this. And I know it was the Holy Spirit, but there was something in me that said, you better not do this. And there were, I saw these people behind him. And I, I just, I, I held it in my hand, I didn't open it. And I said, is there something in here that I shouldn't look at? Is there something in here that, that I shouldn't read? And he said, well, and he took it back. He had taken a Playboy or something like that and put it in a Sports Illustrated to defile the Bible college student. What is that? There's people trying to lure you and, and take you to a place that as a believer you don't need to go. And you know what's wonderful? Now, I made mistakes. I did things that I shouldn't have done. I was not a perfect young person. But I am just so thankful that my parents and the Lord helped me in so many of those areas not to go where I should not have gone. That's what this is. If you have a love for the Word of God and a knowledge of the truth and a knowledge of the holy, that protects you from going down a wrong road. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, we teach our children to hear the Word of God and trust it so they might answer the words of truth to them that call them into the world or after worldly harmful enslaving pursuits. The remedy for enslavement to Satan is the truth. How many of you, have, how many of you know someone who's an alcoholic? You know someone who's an alcoholic. That's a great life, isn't it? Isn't that just awesome? It's sad. It's sad. Wouldn't it be better if your kids never touched it? Wouldn't that be better? Never touched it? What is that? That's establishing some things in your life that will protect them for the rest of their lives. You know, I can tell you, young people, you young people, look at me. You might be an alcoholic. Won't ever bother you if you never take a drink. How many of you recognize there are people that are predisposed to alcoholism? Isn't that right? Might be me. I don't know. Never had a drink. Is, is that freeing? I mean, I... And I know there are things I, I can get so consumed with something. Imagine if it was something that took control of your body, what that would do to you. Terrible, terrible. We teach our children to love God and they won't love that. It's so important. We teach our children to hear the word of God so they don't follow those things. Look at 2 Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
verse 25. The Bible says, <clears throat> teaching, again, Timothy how to reach people, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. You see that? We're Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now look at again, look at what the truth does. Verse 26. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You ready for this? You're captive to something. You're either bringing your thoughts into captivity or you're under the captivity of Satan. You're, you're captive to something. Wouldn't it be better to be captive to the Scriptures, captive to the truth, free through bondage to Christ? Now, how does this work out in real life? How does it work out? This, the last piece of armor that the Bible gives us back in Ephesians chapter 6 is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The last piece of armor is the same as the first. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We are not teaching our children a defensive, monastic posture. We're not going to have them go into a monastery and not have anything to do with the world. But an aggressive, winning attitude. They do not need to be defensive of their biblical stand. We need to go into life with our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our truth does not ultimately hurt. It heals, but this truth must be believed. The Bible says, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Faith in the truth is required to quench the darts that will come. I have faith in that which I love and trust. I have faith in that. I have confidence that my father in Indiana loves me. I have confidence that what he taught me is true. And if I believe that, it will help me through life. I, I'm thankful that I married a wife who had confidence in the faith of her parents. I have faith in that which I love and trust. Just as Solomon was teaching trust in the Lord and the certainty of the words of truth, we must teach our children to trust in the Lord and His Word. Okay, so how does this work out in real life? All right. How many of you agree with what I've said so far? Great. So now how does this look in the real world? How does this work out in our daily life? All right. Your teen is asked, how can a loving God condemn homosexuals? Now, you know that your kids are going to be asked that. In this culture, you know your kids are going to be asked that. How can a loving God condemn homosexuals? Your child, believing and trusting God and his word, answers, because homosexuality is bad for them. That's the answer. The reason God condemns it is because it's bad for them. It hurts them. Then, your child says, it's the expression of a reprobate mind. God loves them so much He wants them to be free from it and have the mind of Christ. Is that a biblical answer? That's the kind of answer we need to teach our children. This is an answer based on faith in God and the truth. This is not the time for defense, but for the offense of the sword of the Spirit. The shield of faith protects me, and the sword of the Spirit pierces, convicts, and corrects them. This is the confidence that God desires for our young people. It's the word of truth. It's a scriptural answer to the problem. Laura and I were watching Huckabee this morning. I don't know, it was 5.30 in the morning or something. And he had on someone from the defense ministry in Israel. And Huckabee said, how do you answer those who say that you're um, hurting uh, non-combatants? The question was something like that in Gaza. And he answered his question, how do you answer them? With the truth. It was unbelievable. With the truth. The truth is that the Palestinians, that Hamas, is hiding missiles in schools. They're, they're putting them in where the children are so that when they're launched and Israel responds, they kill innocents because it helps the cause for Hamas. That's what they're doing. They just found 20 missiles in a UN school. In a school. Little children. 
So he just answered with the truth. It was so fantastic. How are you, you young people? How do we teach our children? When they're confronted with an answer, answer with the truth. Don't equivocate. That's how you answer. It'll help them. It'll help them. Um, So, the first thing we need to do is hear the Lord. And then second, the Lord our God is one Lord. The second priority is hear God as he is revealed in Scripture. When God had Moses write this, it's from Deuteronomy 6.4, the world was profoundly polytheistic. They had many gods. Egypt had a plethora of gods, and their polytheism had corrupted the thinking of many in the multitude Moses led out of Egypt. This became stunningly evident in the golden calf incident. This truth about the Godhead was to be taught diligently to their children. Listen to what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6, 7. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. They were to be taught diligently to the children. There is only one true God. He is the God of the Bible and not the God of popular opinion. His character and attributes are not to be obscured by the idiotic mindlessness of the culture. He is singularly worthy of worship and is the only God who can hear and answer prayer. Ideas have consequences. So when the one true God judges the earth during the seven-year tribulation period, people in the face of horrible torment turn to the gods which cannot see, hear, or walk. Listen to what Revelation 9.20 says. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils, and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Now listen. Our young people might answer that they would never worship an idol made of gold, silver, brass, stone, or wood. That may be true, but it may also still be true that they are idolatrous. If the God they are worshiping is not the God of the Bible, that by definition is idolatry. Let me say that again. If the God they are worshiping is not the God of the Bible, that, by definition, is idolatry. Again, the protest will be made. I am worshiping the God of the Bible. Well, is your God holy? Is your God righteous? Is he the righteous judge? Will he condemn sinners to an eternal hell? Is your rebellion an abomination to him? Is your friend's homosexuality an abomination to him? Does your God hate sin? Is this the God you are worshiping? Some soft-hearted or soft-headed evangelical may be reading this and be offended because of the harsh language. I can imagine the response, what about God's love? Why must you focus so much on the negative? Because you cannot understand God's love, mercy, and grace until you consider His holy anger and righteous judgment. One cannot be saved if they're not lost. We must be saved from something. Many of our young people are not worshiping the God of the Bible. They are worshiping a God of their own making. We must teach them diligently to worship the God who is the one Lord, the God of the Bible. With all we teach them, what are they hearing? How are they filtering and processing our message? I fear that they are hearing our message with the ears of the world that crucified our Lord. Go back to Mark chapter 12. Verse 30, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Now, many times, this is where the teaching begins on this passage or when relating the content of the first commandment. As we've said, Jesus did not begin with this statement. He began with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. When our hearing is engaged and our knowledge of the one true God is sanctified, then and only then are we prepared to love God. Our ability to heed the other commandments is contingent on our love for the Lord our God. Notice the words of the verse. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God. This first commandment is, Hear the one Lord and love the Lord. This will only happen if he is your God. Remember, the ye's and you's are plural. The these and thou's are singular. This is not a command for corporate love, but personal, individual, volitional love. Love the one true God who is your Lord and God. 
This is the most important of the presuppositional truths our young people must understand, accept, and live. When I love the Lord my God, this changes the way I see everything. This changes the way I hear biblical instruction. This love of my Lord and His Word becomes the filter through which I process the messages of my pastor. This is what changes my ears from those that crucified my Lord. See, when you know who God really is, that's one who's worthy of love. That's one who's worthy of love. That's where it begins. All thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, and all thy strength. In the lawgiver's hierarchy of truth, there is no room for any truth but His. Romans 3, 4 tells us to let God be true and every man a liar. There is but one truth. If this is my presuppositional truth, everything else will be forced out. I wish I had time to read you what Spurgeon said about loving God. It's just fantastic. Acknowledgement of the lawgiver's rightful claim to all my heart, soul, mind, and strength changes everything. I feel differently. I value my life differently. I think differently and I work differently. This young person, the one wholly given over to love for God, the one truly furnished unto all good works, who has the right, presuppos- the right presuppositions in their proper order, is ready to head into the world and not be of it. This young person knows how to fulfill the second great commandment. Now... I want us to think about something. This is where the rubber meets the road. Listen to this statement. What the mind is asking reveals what the heart is believing. What the mind is asking reveals what the heart is believing. Okay, now, I know that hearing me read things is difficult to follow. I have friends who actually write out their sermons, manuscript form, and this is their sermon every week. And... Some of you are thinking, oh, dear Lord, please don't let that happen here. Um, uh, I'm just about done, but I want, you to, I want you to see how this works out, okay? Um, when the Bible says, look at, we're back in Mark 6, verse 31. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. All right? First, notice that this is second. All right? I cannot properly love my neighbor until I love God. I cannot love until I'm saved. I may think I am loving, just as George Washington's doctors thought they were helping him by draining out his blood. Their love and concern acted out killed him. Good intentions must be based on what is truly good. Amen? Amen? Again, I cannot love until I'm saved. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. The world has taught our young people a lie. The lie is usually presented in the form of a question beginning with, How could a loving God? Here's one. It's usually full of errors. First, it has an accusatory tone. Second, it implies greater knowledge or possession of love than God himself possesses. Generally, the question continues, how could a loving God condemn people to hell? How could a loving God condemn those who have never heard? How could a loving God reject people based on their sexuality? These questions and all others like them betray a profound ignorance of who God is, of what love is, and also complete ignorance of the nature of man. The questioner's presuppositions are revealed. So, here's a list. How could a loving God condemn people to hell? How could a loving God condemn people to hell? That's what the mind is asking. So what is the heart believing when the mind asks that? Number one, condemnation is not loving. That's what they're believing. People do not deserve hell. I know what love is. I am more compassionate than God. I do not think that I should be condemned to hell because I am good. Number two, how could a loving God condemn people who have never heard the gospel? Now, James Knox said most of the people who ask that never give anyone the gospel. It's interesting, isn't it? But how could a loving God condemn people who have never heard the gospel? Here's what the heart is believing. Number one, I am more compassionate than God. Number two, people deserve to hear the gospel. 
Number three, God is required to tell them. Number four, God has not revealed himself to them. And number five, God is doing something evil. That's what's implied in that question. Question three, how can a loving God reject people based on who they want to love or on their sexuality? Presuppositions, what's that heart thinking? They're thinking, number one, homosexuality is about love. It's not. Number two, homosexuality is good. Number three, I am more accepting of differences than God is. Number four, I know what is good for people. Number five, God is a bigot. Number six, I am open-minded. Christianity is not. Those are the implications of those questions. Now listen to this. When believing teens are confronted with these presuppositions, they know that each of them is wrong. Now, as I make those statements, how many of you recognize that each of those presuppositions are wrong? Right? How many of you have heard those questions before, though? When believing teens are confronted with these presuppositions, they know that each of them is wrong. There is a disconnect between their heads and their hearts. The culture is teaching them how to feel. We are teaching them how to think. We need to teach them first how and whom to love, and then their feelings will follow what they love and know. Right presuppositions in the proper order are vital. They're just vital. How to love. You love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, there's so much more that we could talk about. Let me finish with this. All godly pastors and youth directors struggle with this problem. We all grieve over young people who leave home and also leave the Lord. The only answer is the love of Christ and love for Christ. But this must be the Christ of the Bible. Our young people are brighter than they sometimes appear. We must have high expectations for them. But the highest must be that they know and love the one true God. This is all very real, folks. So here's the question. Are you in church, you young people, are you in church because your parents bring you to church? Or are you here because you love God? Do you love the Lord? Are you putting Him first in your life? You parents, are you here because you're religious? Well, I'm religious. This is what I do on Sunday. Or are you here because you love God, you love His Word, you love His people, and you want to be part of His church? His vehicle of expression in this age to bring people to Him. Why are you here? Why are you here? Do you love Him? Do you love the Lord? When you love people, then your behavior changes, doesn't it? The behavior change first, that's idolatry. If you think you can do something to come to God, you're completely mistaken. But when you come to Him, do you know what He does? He changes you. He changes you. Like he's talking about with Israel, what he's going to do with Israel, he's going to take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. That's what he does for the believer. He gives you the ability to love. He makes you new. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Are you new? Are you new? Are your loves new? Are your passions new? Are your desires new? Are you tying up the loose ends of your life in Scripture? Are you bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ? Or have you filled your life with busyness so that you don't have time to hear that still small voice where God comes and speaks to you through His Word? Where are you? Where are you?